Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. My name is David Burton. I'm a senior fellow in economic policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, welcome to uh, the third in our speaker series called the Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice. Our guest this morning is Sir Roger Scruton. Uh, this event will be a little different than most in the sense it'll be an interview form event where we'll have a discussion for about a half an hour and then open it to audience questions. Uh, Sir Roger Scruton is, I think uh, it's safe to say, the most prominent British conservative political philosopher writing today. He writes with clarity and erudition, unlike many academics. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure it's fair to call him an academic any longer, but uh, there's a distinct lack of jargon, and when he writes, he explains. Uh, and I think his books of which there are more than 40, uh, uh, have a, a clarity and, and uh, conversational style that is unusual. They're worth reading, they're thought-provoking, and I, I would recommend them. He is the founding editor of the Salisbury Review. In the 1970s and 80s, he was very active in forging links between uh, academic dissidents in the communist world and the West particularly in the, well, what is today the Czech Republic and was then Czechoslovakia. He's held a wide number of academic positions, including at Birkbeck College, Boston University, Buckingham University, and Oxford, among others. He is currently the senior fellow in ethics and public policy, excuse me, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in the United States. He has a bachelor's in philosophy and a PhD in aesthetics from Jesus College, Cambridge, and studied law at the Inns of Court School of Law. He was knighted in 2016. As I mentioned, he's written over 40 books. I'm going to mention just a few. There are five that I'll mention on conservatism. The Meaning of Conservatism, Liberty and Civilization, the Western Heritage, A Political Philosophy, Arguments for Conservatism, How to Become a Conservative, and conservatism, an invitation to the great tradition, his most recent and uh, a short book, but well worth reading. Uh, he also has written a great deal on aesthetics, uh, including the aesthetics of music, the aesthetics of architecture, a book called Beauty, and a book called Modern Culture. He also uh, narrated a BBC documentary about why beauty matters. He's written a number of books that are broad-ranging introductions to philosophy, including a short history of modern philosophy, a dictionary of political thought, and philosophy, principles, and problems. He's written a number of novels. Those I have not read. Uh, 
But I would be remiss if I did not mention a book that uh, I think all of us could find of interest. It's called I Drink, Therefore I Am, A Philosopher's Guide to Wine. And with that, let me uh, have a seat and please join me in welcoming Sir Roger Scruton. Let me start with uh, a very broad question. What is conservatism from, from your point of view, and what is its moral foundation? Well, I think that conservatism is what its name declares it to be. The desire and the policy that comes from, uh, from conserving things. That there are things that we value which we recognize are easier to destroy uh, than to rebuild. And so the rational thing is to keep them. Uh, and that requires, as Burke said, also adapting them so that they can survive. Uh, that that's, seems obvious to me. And it, I also believe that that's a, a fundamental instinct in human beings, in social beings, is to conserve the things that they value and to prevent their destruction and to adapt them to change. But the underlying um, principle from all which this uh, emerges is a simple one, namely that uh, the, the love of life. If, if you love something, then you want to keep it. And since your life is connected with these things and you love life, then you want to keep them. Uh, and any other philosophy, to me, is irrational. So I think that conservatism is uniquely rational among all the political choices that we have. Why would you say that conservatism is ethically superior or morally superior, leads to a, a better or more flourishing society than, than its main competitors? Well... It doesn't necessarily um, lead to a more flourishing society. You know, it might, it could all go wrong. Um, and uh, I suppose if I were to say that it was morally superior, I would say it is so only because love is superior to hatred. Uh, and most of what I've seen on the left is um, <coughs> policy suggestions and attitudes which derive from if not from hatred, at least the desire to pull things down and destroy them. There are, of course, uh, several varieties of classical liberalism, Mill's utilitarianism, uh, Locke's uh, rights-based uh, liberalism that was highly influential in, in the founding of the United States and associated with uh, then-politicians such as Jefferson, Madison, or perhaps George Mason. And then there are uh, more modern or modern variants of it, such as Hayek's classical liberalism. What is your take on, on classical liberalism uh, from, from a conservative point of view? Well, I, I see in the political sphere, I see conservatism as having emerged really in the 18th century as a kind of qualification of liberalism that... that um, thanks to Locke and Montesquieu and a, a few people like that, it became apparent to the governing classes that liberty really was a serious political value 
it was possible to obtain it and retain it. And that, to me, is, of course, very important. Uh, but that um, it also posed a threat to social continuity. Uh, if you liberate people completely from the constraints, the social constraints that they are habituated to, then uh, you are in danger of releasing anarchic forces and um, leaving people disoriented when it comes to making major decisions. Uh, so I think that conservatism arose, especially with people like um, Burke and Hume, uh, as a qualification of liberalism, uh, uh, emphasizing that liberty is all very well, but it only makes sense if you also have moral be uh, beings, accountable beings, who can use their liberty properly. And accountable beings come into existence only because of the social context that creates them. And that social context is one which involves institutions, customs, traditions, constraints, you know, the things that conservatives on the whole want to perpetuate. What would you say, I mean, do you think, you're obviously British, we're in the United States, what would you say are the, the important differences between British conservatism and American conservatism? What are, are there things that you think uh, one country's conservatives can learn from another? I think there is a very much a shared attitude to the world that the, it now, at least. Obviously, it wasn't so in the 18th century when there was conflict. But uh, I think both the British and American conservatives are aware that we are heirs to a civilization, you know, a civilization which is much bigger than any one country within it, uh, with th these lasting conceptions uh, of which in individual liberty is one of the most important, and that we must uh, do what we can to protect this civilization and, can, and, um, and to ensure that our children inherit it. So I think there's that in common, but of course, there's a huge difference that you have the, um, that moment of history when you became conscious of yourselves. You know, you, the, American, um, the American settlement is the result of a process of intellectual thought and creation of a constitution designed precisely to last forever uh, and to define the rights of the citizen and set limits to government. And I think that's one of the most wonderful things about America. It begins from the desire to limit what government does rather than to impose government, uh, which is what really how I interpret the Constitution anyway. Uh, and we've never had quite that moment. Um, and we don't have a written Constitution, of course. Everything in Britain is is hidden in the uh, you know in the depths of of institutions and, and in the mist of time. So we muddle along, whereas you constantly strive for clarity, which means that we're always laughing at you, uh, and, but you are always nevertheless succeeding. What is, uh, what's the um, uh, role of free enterprise and private property in society, and why are, are they important? Right, well, um, there's no individual liberty without private property, because without private property, you can't close a door uh, on those who want to invade your, your space. Uh, and um, uh, 
so, so private property to me at least is absolutely fundamental to all the other values that our civilization has uh, propagated uh, and um, doesn't follow though that private property is an absolute right to do whatever you want with what is yours and this is I think this is a big difference between America and Britain uh, if you consider <coughs> property in land and buildings and so on in our law this is a very medieval law of course uh, we, there isn't such a thing as an absolute right of property in land there's only a freehold tenure from the crown which means that it's qualified by whatever conditions the crown chooses to lay down. So you, if, if you have a house, you can't necessarily do with it what you want. Uh, and um, if you want to alter it, you have to have permission. Uh, and you can't necessarily alter it according to your own aesthetic taste. It might have to be, you know, our little place in, in um, Wil rural Wiltshire, we can't change it just like that. If we do, we have to, have to build on using Cotswold stone uh, and make it look as though it's been there forever, um, which, of course, is a very lovely thing. A lot of an American would object to this. He would say, you know, I, I really wanted to have an aluminium shark uh, on, the, on the rooftop. Uh, and this is outrageous that I'm forbidden. And there was just a case of that kind in Oxford recently where an American lunatic put an, an aluminium shark on the roof of his house in a, in a beautiful terraced street as though this fish had crashed into it from the heavens. Uh, Lunatic being a technical philosophical term. So, yeah. no. <laughs> so anyway, the, um, the town council sued him. He sued back and alas, he, was, um, he won the case, which is, um, which is unusual. And having won the case, he then left. Yeah, uh, back to America, <laughs> his point having been made, and this, uh, the subsequent owner uh, demolished the shark. We, we have those kind of restrictions either by zoning yes. or homeowners associations. Right, you do have restrictions, but they're not the same kind. And there is a, uh, always a resentment in America if people do try and control what you do with your property. Mm -hmm. Whereas it's assumed in, in Europe generally that you are holding this on trust from the community as a whole. So what is the proper role of government or the state in economic life, in, in your view? Well, this is, of course, a, a huge dispute all across Europe. We had the, the great socialist experiments, both the totalitarian one in the Soviet Union uh, and also in, in Nazi Germany, uh, and the, the moderate uh, sort of constitutional one in post-war uh, Britain, uh, and France, uh, and uh, to some extent Germany. And um, it's still the case that, that people on the left in, in Europe want to see more state interference in the economy, and people on the right on the whole want to see less of it. Um, uh, and I want to see less of it, but I think there is still a role for the state, definitely, um, We've already discussed it, the role that, that, uh, in controlling what people do with their property in order to harmonize it with aesthetic expectations and with the, um, with the identity of the place where they live. But there's more important, of course, is the, is the question whether the state has a role in redistributing the profits 
that come from private uh, business and from entrepreneurship among those who've made no contribution to, to, it, to those profits? That's the big question. Uh, my instinct, my gut instinct is that it's unjust to take money from one person and give it to another uh, just on the grounds that the one person has it and the other person does not. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about that for a second. What is justice? I mean, it's a, a word that was thrown around a lot, especially social justice. So what, what is justice? How should we think about justice? Well, I, I'm, I take the view that Aristotle defends that justice is giving to each person his due. In other words, what he has a right to or what he deserves. Um, and what, what that is can't be determined a priori. It depends on how he's behaved and what, what relations that he's been engaged in. If he, if he has made a contribution to my profit, the profit that I've gained from my business, and I don't reward that contribution, then I do, an, I, I do him an injustice. The justice consists in, in rewarding people with what they're entitled to, and in the case of criminal activity, uh, giving them what they deserve. And these ideas of right and desert, they're complex moral ideas, which I think you can't uh, define independently of the whole context of the relationship. And that's unlike, say, someone like John Rawls, uh, uh, or the whole tradition of, um, uh, of left liberal thinking in America, which sees justice as a, a mode of distribution of the coll collective assets of society among the various members of it, disregarding how those assets came into being, disregarding the fact that, that property doesn't come into the world um, unowned, doesn't come into the world as it were as a gift from on high then to be distributed. Uh, but if you think of it like that in the Rawlsian way, you immediately have the question, who is doing the distributing, the, the distribution? And then that means, of course, that the state gets complete control ultimately as the, uh, as the owner in default of the whole lot. So at one point you uh, have described yourself as a reluctant capitalist. Mm. And uh, I guess one question would be, why the reluctant? Well, because I've never had the chance to make any money myself. And, uh, and it really annoys me to see all these other people doing it. You know, um, but, but I also see all the, the, the bad side of, um, of, a, of a community entirely based upon the pursuit of profit and entrepreneurship without recognizing the long-term duties of care, the... the, the responsibility for the immediate community, the importance of charity and, you know, and the, the legitimate forms of redistribution that come through the, what Kierkegaard called the works of love, you know, namely the, that the, work, the, the activities which bind you to those who are immediately attached to you. And I, capitalism does have a tendency, and everybody has recognized this, to erode those things. Uh, you know, putting everything on sale, uh, making everything exchangeable. And there, we know that there are areas of human life which we ring fence against exchange, sex being the obvious one. From the beginning of history, it's been regarded 
uh, as, some, as a betrayal of human nature to sell sex and to put uh, people on sale as sexual objects. Uh, and marriage was all about ring fencing the sexual act and, and the love that comes from it. So it is outside the, um, uh, the, the, the market. And that's not the only one, but all those relations where things really matter to us, uh, we withdraw them from the market. And capitalism has a, has a natural tendency to invade and, and put on, on, on sale those things that we want to preserve from it. What else do you believe should be ring-fenced, should be handled through institutions other than the market? Well, of course, um, in general, uh, personal relations, uh, associations uh, should be, uh, you know, uh, they shouldn't necessarily be exposed to exchange when they have an identity of their own. Uh, and things like cities, buildings, you know. Um, you, you, for instance, if suppose uh, somebody acquired Union Station tomorrow and um, closed down the railway, which is defunct anyway, there's, you know, people weren't using it. Uh, you, would, you wouldn't want him to just to put it, just to enter into the whole exchange, property exchange system with that asset, would you? You'd, you'd recognize that this is a, co a collective asset that we all have an interest in, that we all should have a say in what's done with it. And it shouldn't simply be made into an instrument uh, of, um, of exchange in, a, in, the, in the property market. Even, even people on the left complained when Penn Station, New York, uh, was demolished uh, for, um, by the, the then owner of the property to build Madison Square Garden, which is one of the most repulsive uh, places in the whole of the city. And people, you know, even people on the left are now campaigning to rebuild that thing, which was a collective asset. So that's one example of many, you know, of collective assets that we don't want to put on, on sale. All religions are like that. They don't want to put their, uh, their network on sale, their churches on sale, uh, to, to change things simply because it would be more profitable, profitable to do so. You know? um, there might be a lot of money to be made by establishing a, a, a new Muslim sect entirely devoted to gay marriage, but you wouldn't expect them to think that that's something that their religion would permit them to do. You mentioned John Rawls, and obliquely we touched on social justice, but let's, um, I mean, and Hayek famously attacked the very idea of social justice. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any merit in the idea of social justice, or it's, it's uh, simply, uh, as Hayek said, uh, a conflate, you know, social is a weasel word that means, makes justice mean whatever the, the, the left and the, with their egalitarianism uh, wants it to mean. And, do you see problems with the idea of social justice that uh, that uh, are, shall we say, insoluble? Yeah, I, I do agree with Hayek that the word social is a weasel word that sucks the meaning from the word to which it's attached. That's absolutely true. Um, and social justice certainly has been used in order to apply the word justice to activities which 
uh, have nothing to do with justice um, and um, forced redistribution of property uh, in that sense is being called justice. Uh, and if you look at the things that have been called justice in the 20th century, you know, the, the confiscation of the property of the Jews in, in Nazi Germany was called justice. Uh, and um, they didn't go so far as to say the subsequent extermination of the Jews was justice, but it's the, they might as well have done because it, uh, it was um, an abuse of the word which completely over, uh, overrode what it actually means. Justice means respect for others according to them, their rights and their deserts. Um, and it hasn't anything to do intrinsically with distribution. Obviously, particularly in, in Europe, but increasingly in the United States, there are uh, social democratic movements, socialist movements. The whole exact meaning of these terms has evolved and always been a bit fuzzy. But what do you, as a, as a philosopher, regard as the, the central problem, the moral problem with socialism or social democratic philosophies? Well, the central problem, as I see it, is that social democracy can't really be um, prosecuted without conferring on the state more power than can be responsibly exercised. You, you're bound to give to the state and its bureaucrats the power to do things that nobody will actually prove to be answerable for. You know, and this is one of the great problems that we had in Britain with nationalized industries and so on, and which France has with its nationalized industries today. But there isn't anybody accountable for the abuse of this power. Uh, and uh, of course, the, uh, people within those industries uh, can arbitrarily call a strike. Uh, and the government is forced to uh, eventually to capitulate. So it's, it provides these ways in which people can exercise unde undemocratic power over the rest of the nation. Um, and I, we, we have the proof everywhere in Europe that that's is, that is what happens. Not, it isn't just that it leads to economic stagnation, but it produces these arbitrary accumulations of power in the hands of non-accountable people. De Tocqueville famously talked about the uh uh, propensity of Americans to form private associations, or what we today tend to call uh, civil society. Mm. And uh, obviously, Burke talked about little platoons. Uh, what do you see, uh, or what is the importance of civil society or little platoons, and what do you see as the uh, role of government in fostering civil society, and uh, is there any economic dimension to that? Um, I, I think this is a very profound area, and it is the essence of conservatism as I conceive it. The the um, the recognition that that the meaning of our lives as social beings comes from those little platoons. It comes from membership, joining things, finding uh, uh, the community which helps us to flourish as an in, as individuals and to find love and affection with others. Uh, and in that sense, civil society is the great cause, uh, the great conservative cause to, 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 
to help it to flourish independently of the state. The state is something else. It's a system of, of offices and powers and not a system of associations. When the Solidarity Union uh, began the movement of, uh, of escape from communism in Poland, uh, that's how it defined its, its agenda, you know, that uh, we're in, 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 in favor of społeczeństwo against władza, you know, society against, uh, against government and power. Uh, and the civil society movements, I think, are therefore very important. But it raises the question that you've raised, what should be the part of government in encouraging civil society or supporting it or whatever? And again, uh, this is uh, open to capture from the left. People will declare themselves to be civil society organizations, even though they are uh, crypto um, state organizations. A lot of NGOs are like this, or they want or state funded. Or state funded, and wanted to uh, uh, and want to impose upon ordinary people something that they wouldn't spontaneously accept. So I think one needs to look carefully about at how these little associations arise. In the village of Sperryville, where we we lived for a short period. Um, there are a lot of these little associations. The, the local rescue squad was one. It wasn't funded by the state. It was put together by local people, and people volunteered, you know, to to put out fires. Uh, and uh, just so you know, he's talking about Sperryville, Virginia. Yes, yeah, Sperryville uh, in the uh, in Rappahannock County. Um, and there were lots of little platoons in that town, which had nothing to do with with politics at all. Um, and um, I was, you know, so it was a model of, of the old America that Tocqueville so admired. Uh, nowadays, you know, famously, uh, um, it's Robert Putnam, Putnam isn't it? Um, uh, in, his, in his book, Bowling Alone, he, you know, um, charts the decline of these associations as people become more locked into the privacy of the domestic life governed by television, internet, and things like that, uh, 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 taking these shortcuts uh, to gratification, which, uh, which can be obtained in solitude and not with the, uh, in communion with others. Um, you know, and uh, that is one of the great blows that America has suffered. You know, uh, there have been lots of disasters, of course, that America has lived through. There's no, uh, it's not certain yet that America will live through the disaster of television. <coughs> uh, well, it's uh, something that perhaps we'll have a chance to talk about uh, on, on a, another time and, and the, the role that television has played in culturally. But one thing I would like to raise is the, uh, uh, the institution of the family. And which, of course, is, is an unchosen institution, uh, uh, but also one of the more important intermediating institutions between the individual and the state. And what's your view in terms of the importance of the family and also the role of the family in, uh, in the economy and in, uh, as an economic institution? Well, it has always, ever since... Um, conservatism became a sort of self-conscious movement in the 18th century. 
the family was always at the center of it. Um, you know, that, that's the place where people were, uh, not only find their fulfillment, but where they are um, de de dedicated to the next generation and to the, pa the passing on of, of what we now call social capital, you know? namely all the knowledge, the feelings, the spontaneous manners that enable people to relate to each other. Uh, and so this, uh, and nobody can deny that in that sense, the family is the most important institution in society. Whether, uh, and economically it's important, of course, because, because it is the eco fundamental economic unit in a, in a free society. Um, but it's more important culturally because it passes on the socially necessary knowledge, which is not knowledge about facts and, uh, and techniques. It's knowledge about how to relate to other people in such a way as to make them into allies rather than enemies. Without the family, the children are brought up with a, in a sense of antagonism towards the surrounding world, as we know very well. For, you know, this, a lot of sociological research has been done on this uh, you know, by people like Charles Murray and so on, showing that the, the, the person, who, the, the children born out of wedlock and, and passed on from family, from person to person, or ending up in orphanages and so on, such people don't socialize in the same way. They are going to be handicapped for the rest of their lives unless some wonderful angel takes charge of them. You've uh, expressed over the years concerns about the environment and uh, uh, the impact of um, markets and, and industrial development on the environment and uh, seen references to an, an environmental conservatism. Could you describe what you mean by that and uh, your concerns in that area? Yes, I, I see the uh, conservation and conservatism as two aspects of the same thing, uh, that um, the environment is something on which we, we depend and which itself depends on us. It's a mutual relation. And it would be absurd to think that it's not part of conservative politics to to uh, take, uh, take into account exactly what the effect of our activities is on this em environment. But my, the environmental movement ha has, of course, upset people on the right, generally, uh, because it blames big business and entrepreneurship uh, and uh, Western the Western way of life for the environmental degradation that we see. And I, d I don't agree with that. I think that, in fact, properly understood, uh, um, a free economy is more environmentally friendly than any economy so far given to us, uh, organized by the state. And all the facts are there before us. But um, nevertheless, it, doesn't, it is still the case that the neglect of environmental questions by uh, conservative politics here in America and in Europe has not done the conservative movement any favors. So what would be the focus of a conservative environmentalism? What would be the, the sort of principles of, a conserv of environmental conservatism? The, the recognition of a relationship of stewardship towards the surrounding world, re recognize that you have to put back what you take out, um, 
uh, and uh, a desire to protect not just the habitats of animals and wildlife generally, though we should do that, but the desire to protect the human habitat, uh, which has you know, been uh, horribly torn apart by business and, and by the capitalist machine, as you can see from this once beautiful city uh, around you. Let me ask you one last question before we open it to audience questions. And uh, I guess basically I'd like to ask you, what do you think that young conservatives should be reading other than your own books, of course, uh, that, which are, are among the, the best available? What would you recommend that young people read to, to become more familiar with conservative ideas uh, and, and how to properly structure uh, a conservative society? Very good question. I, I, I'm, first of all, uh, you know, young people should read, um, <laughs> and that, that's already something longer than tweets. Yes, yes I'm already demanding a lot from them. I know, but um, having begun to read, it isn't necessary to, in order to understand conservatism, it's not necessary to read uh, the political philosophy of it. Although that is extremely interesting, uh, if you read just Homer and Shakespeare you would know what conservatives are trying to say, uh, trying to draw attention to what is permanent in human nature and teach people to respect it. And that's, of course, what Homer and Shakespeare do. So among the political philosophers... Uh, well... Uh, um, or uh, cultural or aesthetic... Yeah, uh, among writing. the political... Uh, all Americans should read the Federalist Papers because the, the issues are put clearly uh, in a way which is a, a part of an urgent co communication with the people themselves. And, and I think it was, a, it was a wonderful exercise in making available to ordinary people just what is at stake in the big political choices. Um, and Burke's uh, reflections on the French Revolution, likewise, were an attempt to awaken people to what is at stake. And... Um, you know, but then there's all the theoretical stuff as well. But. Mm -hmm. I suppose one, one other thing that, that I find interesting in, in your writing um, is your uh, interest in Hegel, mm -hmm. which American conservatives um, almost never would uh, consult. Uh, what, what do you find of value in, in Hegel uh, as a, a British conservative? Well, I... Um, Interestingly enough, he was the first philosopher fully to express uh, in theoretical terms a distinction between civil society and the state. Uh, you know, and he made that absolutely clear. He also emphasized that the, that the primary associations whereby human beings find fulfillment in society are not part of the state. They belong to civil society um, and to the family, and I think um, he he built his he built his pr defense of private property out of his theory of the family. It wasn't an abstraction of the Lockean kind. So I, I I think for those reasons he was much more realistic than any uh, British conservative philosopher. 
All right. Well, with that, uh, let's open it to audience questions. Um, first, you, and if if you could wait for the mic and then uh, say your name and any institutional affiliation. Hello, my name is Ashton, um, and I actually just spent three months in London over the summer uh, experiencing what is this huge free speech movement over there. And um, I want to know what your idea on is about how people are now being told what they can or cannot say on the internet currently, and there's currently a huge political bias on the internet. Mm. Well, free speech has become an issue in a very surprising way, as everybody knows, in recent times, in the last few years, because of the internet, because of social media. And um, we, I don't think that anything has changed as to the value of free speech. You know, without free speech, there isn't free anything, really. If people can shut you up um, so that you can't defend your position, can't make the space that you need to be yourself, uh, then you have, in, in effect, surrendered. Um, but um, uh, there are these efforts to to suppress uh, opinions and, and so-called hate speech. Uh, and the great question is, who is defining what is hate speech? It always turns out to be people who are on the left with a, with a, uh, a cause of their own, uh, who want to prevent you from saying things which will be uh, belong to the to the other side so I, I think it's very dangerous to to allow people to introduce hate speech laws uh, and all that kind of thing although everybody knows that we ought to do something about social media bullying and I tell you what we should do about social media bullying is get off social media and be real yes ma'am Mike is coming. Barbara Bowie Whitman. I actually served for three years in London during the time when Reagan was president here and Mrs. Thatcher was prime minister in Britain. But my question comes to something local, very local here. In the Republican Party of Virginia, we have a written creed, and it contains the phrase which I consider rather unfortunate that, although I love free markets, free markets are the mean, best means to assure economic justice. Now, I have no idea what economic justice means to anybody who wrote that creed. I refuse to say it when I stand up and recite it with other people at meetings because it sounds very leftist to me. But I wonder how that strikes you. Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, um, the, my first response is to say that economic is not a weasel word like social. So, so it, could, it doesn't just make the word following it mean what you want it to mean. Um, and I, I can understand how you might think that free markets produce economic justice because um, they lead to distributions which are the result of free choice and therefore nobody's rights have been violated, nobody's deserts have been ignored. Uh, so that would be, I suspect, what's being meant. But it might have been better not to use the word justice. I agree. This gentleman in the back. Uh, 
uh, David Mashi with the Pew Research Center. Um, uh, first of all, thank you both for a very interesting uh, discussion. Um, and actually, my question goes back to the introduction um, uh, that was made. Um, you've written about so many different things, uh, and the list that Mr. Burton uh, gave wasn't even really complete. Um, I'm just curious, um, is this something that you set out to do, to be a, a sort of polymath, or or did you just sort of find yourself falling into it as you as your interests expanded um, uh, as you as you went on with your writing career? I, I know it's it's. Um, I, I often feel guilty about having written about so much because it uh, it suggests that I've only superficially uh, touched the surface of things. Um, I I vociferously refuse to believe that though in in other moments. Um, uh, but I, I just get interested in things, and then I want to go into them, uh, and I, I can't think without writing. So uh, my thinking about something automatically leads to my having written something about it. And it's just the I think, insofar as I've ever had a vocation, it is as a writer. So you know, there it is. This lady right here. Hi, my name is Harper Lee. Um, what is your opinion on the idea of presentism and how it's applied to the conservative movement and kind of historical understandings and interpretations of conservatism? Presentism meaning what exactly? The idea of applying um, modern-day beliefs or understandings to past historical events, ideas of like taking down statues or because of what oh, we currently understand that. events to be. Uh. I think, well, my instinct is to think that you, you can't really love life in the present without respecting the traditions which led to the present. Uh, you, you have to you have to acknowledge debts debts of gratitude, uh, uh, and to honour what people in the past honoured, who've passed, who have um, on whom you in some sense depend. It is very difficult question about the you know taking down statues and all that. Um, any statue that you put up to an actual human being is um, a, a tribute to somebody imperfect, and you know. And at some stage in the future, it's going to be discovered that he too did this, you know. And so, all statues are either um, impermanent if you if you allow that, that thought to to, um, to take root in you, or uh, they are to be left alone, you know, and uh, it's quite important for people, even if they want to repudiate their past, to know that there is such a thing as the past, and that there, and that one lifetime isn't enough to know all that they need to know. Wallace, <clears throat> I'm Wallace Dewitt of the law firm of Cahill, Gordon, Rindel, Most recently at the SEC, just down the street, where I know Dave from. Uh, so you've been on a publishing roll the last few years. Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands' re-release was wonderful. Your novel was wonderful. But one of the things that I was most struck by is the, the television program on, on beauty. Mm. And I, I came actually today to ask you, what is, what is your feeling about the city of Washington, D.C.? Uh, just at the very end of your remarks, you alluded to our once beautiful city. I think I understand what you mean by that. Uh, but I'd be curious to hear, um, as... Uh, an outsider to D.C., as most people, frankly, are. Uh, 
what strikes you aesthetically about where we live? And give it to us hard if you need to. Well, the first thing that strikes one, of course, is that unlike most American cities, this was laid out beautifully, uh, partly because it was laid out by a Frenchman uh, and um, isn't just a meaningless grid going on forever. Um, but uh, what strikes one is, of course, that the, the huge collective effort to make it into a monument to the American idea. Uh, uh, the, the, the public buildings, uh, obviously the, all the Constitutional Avenue and so on, all that is um, very moving and, and a desire to perpetuate the, the achievements of the past in memorials and all the rest. And the use of a, uh, of a local uh, sort of classical idiom as in Union Station, which is one of the great buildings in this city, and, and of course in uh, uh, obviously Congress and so on. Um, all that is wonderful, uh, and the idea of there being a height limit which went with that, that's all wonderful. Everything was done to make this into a, a jewel, uh, an urban, urban jewel, uh, in which people could live and flourish uh, as communities. But it's been surrendered to the market, uh, inevitably, and there's been no attempt to control the materials used to build or the style of the buildings or the facades on the streets. As a result, it's increasingly just a collection of glass boxes side by side forever uh, in which nobody can live because they, they, don't, they don't lend themselves to, uh, to domestic life. People can work in them, but they flee from them to the suburbs. So eff effectively, the... Uh, the Society of Washington lives in Maryland. Or Virginia. Or Virginia, yes. Yeah. Yes, ma'am, right here. Um, hi there. Thank you for being here. My name is Helen. Um, I have a question about, about mass culture. Um, the way that I see it, there's a very specific kind of Western virtue that serves as a bulwark against the trappings of capitalism. And um, there's this proliferation of ugliness in mass culture now that I think really erodes that virtue. And I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and, and how people can sort of escape the ubiquitous ugliness of, mm. of the culture itself. Well, I, I, this is a good question. I, I, I totally agree that there, and I, I was talking about this yesterday, that that there is what Kundera calls the uglification of our world through mass culture uh, and through the sexualization of popular entertainment and all that. Um, and um, it, it is rooted in, I think, in this uh, desire to to draw attention to oneself. It's very easy to draw one attention to oneself by standing out in some way. And you stand out easily, most easily, by being rude, aggressive, um, and uh, alerting people to you. Uh, whereas people should be aiming to fit in, which is what you do by good manners, civility, uh, and generally attempting not to offend and all the rest. Um, and so, and the culture is, diver is, div 
devoted to this activity of standing out, and, and that leads automatically to ugliness because it leads to people putting the, the me idea in, in front of the you, you know, above the you. And um, so the solution to it is to learn how to, uh, to try to work towards a culture in which people are addressing others, not expressing themselves. And that's what the classical idiom is in architecture. Um, and it's what classicism in literature is as well. I think uh, you know it's up. You can't you can't insulate yourself completely from the surrounding uh, um, noise, but you can create the space where you're doing that. You know where you're um, entertaining yourself with with uh, art and literature and so on, which is addressed to others and not just a, an exercise in self-expression. You can. You can ignore those mu museums where you see all the uglified art. And one of the great advantages of modern art museums is that they capture this stuff and keep it behind the doors. <laughs> they, you don't, you don't actually, you don't actually ever have to encounter a Jeff Koons, you know. Um, so it's all. There are solutions, but they're not. You know, they're they are personal and local. Yes, ma'am. My name is Amber. I work in environmental policy. Um, I really appreciate your work on this topic. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are on ecosystem services. It's kind of a way that uh, the environmental community has lately been trying to understand the environment. For instance, like a tree would provide $20 worth of beauty, like $10 worth of heating expenses. Is that like a useful like way for conservatives to look at the environment and consider it. Yeah, what exactly is the does one do? You mean investing in a tree or? Well, let's say you want to cut down a tree. Yes. Well, instead of cutting it down, you can think about how uh, the tree provides the community with fifty dollars oh, worth see. of yeah. beauty. Yeah. Put put it. You mean putting a price tag on everything? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, there are. Yeah. This is. There's no harm in doing that, of course, um, but there it leads to phony solutions. There's this uh, appalling man called Stern, Lord Stern, who wrote a, a report for 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 a, um, Tony Blair's government on on global warming, who put it all in economic terms. You know that that um, how much such and such a temperature rise would would cost, but how the economy would grow to cover that cost, etc. Uh, completely, uh, complete fantasy, a mathematical fantasy, which replaced the real problem uh, with with, uh, with a, a statement which meant nothing. And he was rewarded with the highest positions in in, uh, in the environmental movement as a result of this. Um, but everybody knows that that of course economics has an awful lot to do with it. Uh, but but you can't actually give the equivalent, the economic equivalent of the thing that we might lose in losing our environment. Uh, this is because part of it is that, uh, that, that, that these are priceless things and also things which are ap appreciated as priceless. You know, the Hudson River Valley it, it is not something that has a price tag on it. It's something which is beautiful in itself 
uh, and its beauty is what is what part of what makes us conserve it. We can, we don't conserve it because we've got we um, you know we haven't yet found its equivalent its dollar equivalent. Uh, we conserve it because it is what it is, not very well, of course. But, um, so I think that we w although economic reasoning is very important if you're going to form coherent policies, you have to recognize that it's economic reasoning about something which does not have an economic value, but an intrinsic value. This gentleman in the middle in the white shirt. Connor Fogarty from the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. Uh, my question is, despite the fact that young people grow up in a world that is safer and more prosperous, there is a lot of emotional instability and a lot of motivation to get behind a sort of, as you've put it, a culture of repulsion. What do you think are the social changes that contribute to this state of affairs? Well, um, what one is, of course, that, that um, there, isn't, there isn't real hardship that the young have to face anymore. Um, if they're in big trouble, they'll be lifted out of that trouble by the state, by subsidies of one form or another. They don't need their parents in quite the way that previous generations needed their parents. Uh, so that respect for those who have looked after them has declined, respect for their teachers and so on. So, uh, and, and the interesting thing is that the, the, you, the more you allow disrespect to grow, the more justified it feels. Um, and this is something that Tocqueville recognized in the French Revolution, that, that revolutions turn aggressive only when the other side becomes too weak to put them down. You know, uh, and loses its ability to command the respect that, that, that would keep order in place. So I think there is something, there's something, there is a de definite disorder in our society that's allowed young people in this way to separate themselves from, from their obligations before they're actually ready for it. And then, of course, the universities uh, help them along in this path. By, uh, by offering them a kind of uh, unreal forms of glory. Uh, still subsidized, they can nevertheless uh, attack visiting speakers and, uh, and, and experiment with, uh, with, uh, you know, with their social, anti-social ideologies and so on. It gives them a, a sense that you know, they're making the world anew. This has been in the case in place since the baby boomers first came to uh, maturity. I mean, it was my generation. Uh, I was an unusual, you know, misfit in my generation. I didn't feel this, but uh, on the other hand, uh, my colleagues, my contemporaries, all did. Terry Miller with the Heritage Foundation. Um, I would just say that Lord Stern uh, is not just an economist, he's a very bad economist, and I hate to see the whole profession uh, tarred with, uh, with his uh, reputation. 
Um, but in any case, I'd, I'd ask you to explore a little further. Several times in your remarks, you've um, injected uh, your personal value judgments, which I may or may not agree with on things like the beauty of the Hudson River Valley or the value of Penn Station in New York City, um, uh, that conflict with the concept of private property or the freedom of individuals to, to make decisions uh, through the marketplace. And I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on what you view as the proper way to uh, reconcile those competing views in a, um, in a democratic and free society. I think this, this is very important. Uh, I don't take the view that aesthetic values are subjective. I don't think they're straightforwardly objective either. I think that they are a vehicle for arriving at a consensus uh, and that we are spontaneously uh, disposed towards working for a consensus. And if we, have, if we allow the democratic process to, to work, uh, that consensus does uh, tend to settle. Uh, and we've seen this in, in Britain. You know, a lot of research has been done recently into what people really feel about the modernist buildings in London, and it's universal disapproval. Uh, and what do people feel about the, uh, the old-fashioned terrace streets that were demolished to make room for these things? Universal approval. 10% disagree, but you, you find that they are all architects. Uh, and, <laughs> And I think you'll find that exactly the same in, in here in, in, in Washington if you did the, the research. So it's just that there are two ways in which democratic choice uh, manifests itself, as you know. One is in the market, which, which as it were, summarizes choices uh, individually by feeding them into, a into, the, into the price mechanism. Uh, and the other way is by direct, uh, directly asking the question, uh, and drawing uh, up a, a schedule of the answers. Uh, and it, it, the great question is how to bring these two forces together, how to allow one to qualify the other. That's one reason why I was saying that ultimately property rights have to be qualified rights, because otherwise you don't allow a voice for, for those whose, whose um, life is affected by your choices in, in, you know, when you're developing property or whatever. All New York was affected by the loss of Penn Station. Uh, that the quality of life, the sense of identity of belonging to a place, went down a notch. Yet those people had no voice. That's what, so there ought to be a planning process which gives them voice, and then you know, and, uh, 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 and that's fed should be fed into the subsequent market in property. This gentleman in the back. <coughs> Hello, my name is Ethan Geck, and um, I work for the House side of Congress. Um, I had a question for you. Um, unless you are a pluralist or a nihilist, um, capitalism allows for the populace to share their beliefs, opinions, and attitudes, whether intrinsically true or false. Do you believe that capitalism is effective without tact? And if so, how do you educate the populace to be to have tact, civility, and respectability without being tyrannically dogmatic. You well. So that's, that's my question. A little bit mouthful, but 
No, no, I, um, I agree with you that tact is required to achieve anything. Um, but uh, maybe we need to go back a, a, st a step or two that the word capitalism is perhaps not um, as helpful as it might be. Um, it, it's a word, I think it comes out of Saint-Simon, taken up by Marx to denote um, uh, uh, what he regarded as a an economic system which was uh, part of a sequence of economic systems which will give way to socialism. Everything that has, every word that has the word ism in it should be distrusted, uh, I think. Um, uh, and, and looking back on it, we can see that those 19th century theories try to, to make it make something which was a, just simply the spontaneous outcome of what people do when not controlled into some form of conspiracy, so, you know, a, 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 a power grab by the bourgeois class. Uh, and um, in that sense, I think now, looking back on it, especially with the eyes of someone like, like Hayek, what cap all that we should be meaning by capitalism is is economic freedom, and it's what uh, an economic freedom like every freedom has to be exercised tactfully, because uh, exercising your freedom is inevitably limiting others' freedom, uh, and tact means simply achieving the arrangement whereby each person's freedom can be exercised to the maximum without intruding on others. Uh, so, yeah, that will be a, my general response to what you're saying. Um, and tactlessness has many forms, of course. Um, the, the ostentatious buying up uh, of a whole neighborhood uh, and uh, redeveloping it without, without uh, consulting the, the, uh, the residents is not very tactful. But, uh, you know, whether it should be illegal is another question. This Thank you, Robert Bellafiore. I'm at the Tax Foundation and a former Heritage intern. You spoke about conservatism as coming out of a kind of liberalism, but today there are many conservative thinkers who oppose liberalism wholesale and think that we have to root conservatism in pre-liberal sources. Could you comment on that perspective? Yes, I think part of the problem here is that the word liberalism has changed meaning. In Locke, when we describe Locke as a liberal, not that he would use that word of himself, actually, but we, we mean some, somebody whose political vision is founded on respect for individual freedom. And the idea is to reconcile that individual freedom with orderly government. That's been the exercise of that the aim of classical liberalism from Locke down to John Stuart Mill. But nowadays in America, the word liberal is meant, it means usually someone of vaguely socialist leanings who, who, who is committed to a redistributive uh, form of taxation uh, and um, generally hostile to, to free enterprise and business and in favor of, uh, uh, of <coughs> disrupting the tra traditional moral order of the, of the society in which he is. So it's a, a very much a left-wing position and, and uh, goes with advocacy of an increase in the power of the state rather than a decrease in it. 
So I think the word liberalism has become, um, has changed its meaning so radically that you can, that, that conservatives, conservatism is now, uh, as it were, a name for the opposite. Whatever, you know, whatever liberals think, we don't. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying this is a good change, this change in the meaning of the word, because it makes it look as though uh, the liberal is always on the side of the underdog. He's the one who's liberating him, giving more freedom to those who's, who are otherwise oppressed. Whereas, in fact, what, it, what the liberal is today is one who is surrendering the individual to his form of, of oppression, oppression through the state. We have time for maybe two more questions. This gentleman. My name's Michael. Um, you've said elsewhere that one of the great saving uh, graces of Western culture and something that sets us apart from others is our respect for the drink. And in your book, I Drink, Therefore I Am, you seem to take a position uh, reaffirming Thomas Jefferson's quip that wine is the only antidote to the bane of whiskey. And so as a native Kentuckian, I have to ask, uh, do, you, do you have any sympathy for, or is there anything, any redeeming quality to be said for bourbon? Uh, no, uh, actually, no, I, I'm, I, do, uh, I, I do think there is, of course, a, a lot to be said um, for whiskey in the American form. There's a, a beautiful essay on it by Walker Percy, is it? Yeah. Um, uh, which uh, tell, uh, emphasizes the, w the way in which this has, has formed um, a, a particular kind of society around it. Uh, uh, and uh, and um, actually, when you look at this in the wider context, the, the whole idea of the cocktail, of, of getting together at a particular moment of the day, it gets earlier, I think, every year. But suppose it were around five o'clock when when the business was over, before you're having the, the the social meeting among your colleagues who've come from all over the world. Uh, this crucial moment when people can drink something quite heavy like that uh, that will flows through the whole system uh, and warms it into a state of excitement in one go, uh, and they're all in one room. That's why you get. The way you get these incredible rapid business deals, which which get the whole economy going so rapidly that you outstrip all your competitors, <laughs> and it's one reason why why the economic life in the Middle East is so moribund. It, nev <laughs> it never happens. Okay, another question. This gentleman. Thank you. I have a question about uh, pro-natalist policies. Uh, we've heard of them tried in certain countries in Europe, Poland, Hungary. Um, in the U.S., there's talk about perhaps providing uh, more tax cuts based on the number of children one has. Mm. What are your opinions uh, on the issue of uh, a nation's uh, rate of reproduction? How essential is it to national renewal? And do you think the state has a role in that area? It's a very um, important question. The, the, the French, after the war, certainly subsidized <laughs> child rearing in this way. And uh, I think they were the first major European country to do it. <clears throat> and it did eventually rectify what could have been a demographic disaster. 
um, say, complete loss of the, the next generation. Um, it, it obviously is the case that, that uh, if societies are to endure, they have to have children. Uh, and if they're not producing children that will enable them to, repro to reproduce the, the current uh, quant uh, quantity of citizens, they have to make provision for that. There is no reason, though, why populations shouldn't decline. Uh, it's just the question is how they, they decline. If you have a welfare state which guarantees pensions from the age of 60, <clears throat> or even younger in some European countries, and you've got no young people to provide for those pensions, you're, you're heading for disaster. The only way in which you can allow a population to decline is if you allow older people to work until they drop, um, you know, which, which they're, they're mostly inclined to do anyway. Uh, and, and these days, people are, are, are still young and energetic at my age. I'm 74. I haven't stopped working and um, would be happy to go on working if the, if the conditions were right. And, and we haven't yet, in Europe, we haven't faced this huge problem uh, that, that we're actually withdrawing people from the workforce aged 60 or 65, which is when they are actually maximally useful because they have a lifetime's knowledge in them and they still have the energy to apply it. This is a, and this is a kind of madness. But again, it, it involves, to rectify it, involves undoing a whole ream of socialist prejudices about our care for the aged. I'm, I'm all in favor of, being, of looking after the aged, but not at the expense of looking after the young. the former and now retired commercial station WMAL in Washington. They, it went to a tune, which I won't entertain the audience by singing, but it said, in memorials of marble and in monuments of stone, there's a deep abiding feeling of a greatness we have known. That's why we like to be in Washington, D.C. <laughs> well, with that, thank you, Sir Scruton, and uh, thank you all for being here. This concludes our event. And we'll send you notice of, of the uh, following events.